Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be starting with verse 24. Today we learn about Epaphroditus. How many of you know anything about Epaphroditus? How many of you knew there was a guy named Epaphroditus in the Bible? I mean, really, anyone who's read the Bible knows that, I guess, right? But Epaphroditus is an easily forgotten fellow, partly because his name is hard to pronounce, right? <clears throat> Not one that we see today. Timothy, you're going to remember because there's still Timothys around, but when was the last time you met an Epaphroditus? <clears throat> Never, right? How many of you have ever met Epaphroditus? Nobody. Okay. Yep. Pretty forgettable character. <clears throat> I'm always excited when we come to people like this in the Bible who we are generally forgetting that we don't remember that we don't have their name being used in our culture. They only show up briefly. This is the only place where Epaphroditus shows up. There's another guy, Epaphras, similar name, not the same. Epaphroditus only is right here in the book of Philippians, only for a few verses, but we're told enough about him that we get to learn a lot about ministers <clears throat> and what we should honor them for, what what we should expect from them and look to them to do. So let's listen now to how Paul describes Epaphroditus to us. Please stand for the reading of God's Word from Philippians 2.24-30 I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Epaphroditus seems to be the pastor who is serving the church in Philippi at this time. What Paul does is he sends him back to Philippi, having recovered enough that he is not just beyond the danger of death through his illness, but also apparently, well enough to travel, right? There's a big difference between being out of danger of dying from a sickness and being ready to travel. Especially at that time, you think about what traveling was like without cars or airplanes or buses or trains or anything faster than a horse. It's a long way, a dusty way. takes a lot of energy, takes a lot out of you to travel any distance that way. What Paul does is he sends him back, and he sends him back with a message. The message is that 
he's also going to send Timothy. The message actually seems to be this letter, right? It's He's the one who's bringing the letter to them. And in the letter, he, Paul explains, Here, here's Epaphroditus, I'm sending him back to you. you. You received your minister safe and sound back to you. Honor him. <clears throat> but part of that message that Paul sends back with him is also, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you before long. That was just what we saw prior to this passage. And then, that he himself is hoping to come soon. Now, I want, I want you to think about that for a minute. <clears throat> he talks about how honorable man like Epaphroditus is. But he also talks about how he desires to send Timothy. And then he talks about how honorable Timothy is. We already saw that. That he has nobody else like him. Right? Nobody else that cares for them like Timothy does. And even then, he says that he is hoping to come before long. Now, what does that tell you about the church at Philippi? There's a lot of things that you could, that you could guess at. You could guess that they're terribly sick and unhealthy spiritually, right? They need these three men, faithful men there who, you know, it's like sort of going in, in like, you know, I'm sending the best that I've got, that you've got back to you, and then I'm sending the best that I've got, and then that's certainly not going to be enough, so I'm going to have to come, right? But that's not the impression that you get from this letter, is it? I mean, if we were reading the letter to the Corinthian church, maybe that would make more sense. Because you see all of the troubles and, and unhealthiness in the church at Corinth in the letter that Paul, letters that Paul writes to them. You don't see that in this letter to the church at Philippi. Its focus is simply on him telling them, rejoice. Have joy, celebrate, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice even in trials. Rejoice even though I'm in jail and you love me and you don't want me to be in jail. Well, if it's not that they're terribly spiritually sick, What is it? Why does Paul want to send Epaphroditus to them and then Timothy to them and then come himself? I don't think that it says anything specific about Philippi except that there is a great need for faithful pastors and teachers for God's people. There is a great need for faithful men who are willing to serve <clears throat> with this sort of selflessness. If you look back at what we studied with Timothy in the, in the uh, previous verses, what you see is that Epaphroditus is really described in some of the same kind of, coming from the same mold as Timothy does. The difference, of course, is that Epaphroditus is theirs. And Timothy is Paul's, right? Epaphroditus was sent by them to Paul, and Paul is sending Timothy to them. It's just a, it's just a, a directional difference. But if you look at the description of Timothy and Epaphroditus, you begin to see a lot of overlap. You begin to see a lot of similarities. Timothy cares about the people at Philippi, and Paul wants to make that clear to them as he sends him to them. Epaphroditus cares about Paul, and the Philippians 
care about Paul and want to make that clear to Paul as they send Epaphroditus to Paul. What you see is a sweet relationship that is not just one where Paul cares about the Philippians. And we've known that from earlier in the letter. But here what we see is not only have they sent care and and support to Paul, but they have sent somebody who is very valuable to them as a church, given him up at the risk of losing him, because that risk is always present when traveling at that time especially. Traveling was a very dangerous undertaking. And indeed, it turns out that they do almost lose Epaphroditus. And yet, God has mercy, sparing his life and allowing him to return with this letter, with this message from Paul, with the promise of more strength and encouragement to come through Timothy and, Lord willing, through Paul himself. And he tells them, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. So what sort of man was this Epaphroditus? Well, we see several reasons why he says to hold him in high regard and, and description of who Epaphroditus was. Here's how Paul describes him. First, as a brother. A brother. When, when we think of a brother, what do we think of? Depends on how old you are, I think. (laughs) When you think of a brother, you might think of someone who is always annoying you. Just be honest, right? But is that what Paul's talking about when he says Epaphroditus is a brother? Kids, you think he means that Epaphroditus is always annoying him? No. That's not what he means, is it? So what do you think Paul means when he says Epaphroditus is a brother to him? Uh, You're all looking like, uh, I'm going to look away so that I don't actually feel like I have to answer. Do you think that they had the same mom? Was Epaphroditus Paul's brother? Did he grow up in the same house with the same family as Paul? No. Out of no. Yeah. So when he says that he's his brother, what does he mean? Yeah. Damn. He means his brother in Christ. Yes. This is just one, one example of many places where we see the priority of the family of Christ over the physical family. When he says brother, he means brother in Christ, and that means much more to him than the fact that Epaphroditus wasn't born into the same family as him. Or another way to put it is, if Paul did have a brother from the same family, but who wasn't serving the Lord, would he be able to send him to the Philippians and call him his brother? If he didn't serve Christ, he could never do that. So here's what we see. Paul starts with the description of Epaphroditus as 
his brother. And it means that they both share the same father and mother, their father being God, their mother being the church of Jesus Christ. And they therefore are part of a family together with the Philippians. The family of God. They're brothers in Christ, which means that Christ is brother to both of them. It means that they both share the same inheritance in God. It means that they are both Christians. But brother carries along with it more than just a statement that you're part of the same family. It means that you are committed to one another. It means that you love one another. It means that you are willing to work for one another, defend one another, help one another. We see this as Paul begins to describe further this man, Epaphroditus. That second description he gives is that Epaphroditus is what? Kids, you see what comes next after brother? In verse 25, brother and what? Fellow, fellow worker, that's right. A fellow worker with Paul. Well, that begs the question, what exactly is the work that Paul is doing? What is the work that Paul was doing? Well, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so the work that Paul is doing is the work of spreading the good news, proclaiming the gospel. What is the, what is the work that Epaphroditus is doing? Well, Epaphroditus is working towards the same goals that Paul is doing. Epaphroditus is not an apostle. Right? We know the twelve apostles. But Epaphroditus, in spite of the fact that he's not an apostle, is committed to and serving in a, the same goals, the same seeking that the same thing would be accomplished, that Christ's kingdom would be established here on earth. And so if you are a brother in Christ then you have to be a fellow laborer. You have to be a fellow laborer. Because you have to have the same goals. Remember that this sort of unity of goal and of vision and of purpose is something that Paul has been emphasizing in this book. That he wants them to be seeking the same things. He wants them to be of the same mind. Having the same purpose. And so what Paul says by calling Epaphroditus a fellow worker is that Epaphroditus is together with him doing God's work. That they have the same goal. That they have the same vision, that they are working towards the same ends, that God's name would be glorified and that his gospel would be spread and that many would hear it and that by God's power, they will repent and believe on Jesus Christ. In other words, that there will be more brothers and fellow workers. 
The moment you think of being a fellow worker with Paul, though, you begin to realize that Paul, Paul suffered pretty seriously for his work that he was called to do specifically by God, don't you? And so the third description that we get of Epaphroditus as fellow soldier, fellow soldier with Paul, really isn't that surprising, is it? It is a fight. When you're called into the kingdom of God, you are not called to the same work as anybody else. You are given your own work to do. You are a single brick being put into the building that God is building. But you're part of a wall, right? And the wall is part of a larger structure. And so in spite of the fact that you are an individual with your own individual place in the kingdom, there is no ability that we have to be a brother of Christ, to be a fellow worker, without also recognizing that with that comes fighting. With it comes fighting. What do we fight? Who do we fight? Well, fighting implies violence, doesn't it? Who are we being violent against? Is this the is this the violence of is this the violence of uh, getting boxing gloves and fighting with boxing gloves? No. Is it the fighting of fighting against a bag of sand with padding wrapped around it that you can kick and punch? Is there any is there any actual fighting? When he says soldier, does does that mean like um, you know, just someone who marches? Or does it also mean someone who fights? Both? You think both? So what's the violence? What's the fighting? When soldiers fight, is it with pads? Is it fake? Or is there actual danger? When you fight, are you fighting for fun or are you fighting for your life? If you're a soldier, it's a matter of life and death, isn't it? When Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier, he means that Epaphroditus is actually fighting, just like Paul is actually fighting. What is it? Who is it that we're fighting against? Who is it that we are being violent towards? Is there anyone or anything we're actually supposed to put to death? Can you think of anything, kids? Anything that we are supposed to mortify? You know what mortify means? Put to death. Yes. What's that? We're fighting against Satan, but can we put him to death? 
No, we can't put him to death. But we are fighting against him. Absolutely right. Yes. The teachings of Satan? Absolutely. And can we destroy those? Yes, we can. We have been given weapons. We have been given power. It's a beautiful thing. The weapons of our warfare aren't a a battle axe, right? But we have real armor, spiritual armor that we are commanded to put on and weapons that we are commanded to pick up and use. And we're told that the fight is not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So principalities, who would that be? Satan, we already got that example, right? Powers and world forces of this present darkness. And we're commanded to fight against the doctrines of demons and to wage war against them. But so far, all of that is on the outside. And what I want us to see here at the start is that when you become a brother of Christ, when you become a fellow laborer, a fellow worker, when you become a Christian, it requires that you start fighting immediately. And the immediate fight that you have is not against somebody or something out there, but instead it's against something that is in here. Deep, deep in here. What is that thing? What are we to put to death? The deeds of darkness, the lusts of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh sounds like a very um, sort of uh, nebulous concept. <clears throat> And I think part of the reason is because it's just something that you hear. You hear that phrase, and after a while it begins to lose some of its power, some of its potency. But if we're fighting together, the first thing that we're fighting against is desires that we have ourselves that are wicked. The desires themselves are wicked. And so we are to put to death that sinful, wicked desire. We are to put to death that man, the old man. That's who we are fighting against. In other words, when I ask you what it means to be a soldier, you say it means I fight with myself. I fight with myself. And I fight to win. 
I fight with myself, and I fight to win. Paul talks about this in Romans, how there's two men within him, and it's like, ah! And it's a fight to the death. This is where we start as soldiers. And if you think about being an actual soldier, there's all kinds of training that's necessary to be an effective soldier, right? But even being a soldier, if you're going to march out on the field before you engage in battle, you're going to have to fight yourself, aren't you? And the reason you're going to have to fight yourself is because you're going to have bad habits that are going to get you killed if you don't get rid of those bad habits before you get to the battlefield. Because you've practiced swinging your sword as a kid the wrong way. And your commander says, no, that's going to get you killed. You can't do that. And so you have to fight against bad habits that you have established, maybe lifelong. And you're also going to have to fight in other ways. One big way is that you are going to have to fight against your desire to turn and run away the moment that you see the enemy. Right? And if you're one of those few percentage of people who doesn't think immediately, ah, run away! (laughs) They have guns! They have... Right? Then you're probably going to have to fight to control and put to death some other wicked desire like bloodlust. You see, even in being a literal soldier, physical soldier in this life, we recognize that it is a work that is filled with disciplining ourselves first. Fight does not start out there. The fight starts in here. Epaphroditus is a soldier. He's a fellow soldier with Paul. We look at the rest of the New Testament to understand what that analogy, what that metaphor of a soldier really means. We see those places where the spiritual armor is described, where the fight is described, where we fight as seeking to win, right? Just like if if the analogy was an athlete, you run seeking to win the race. And so Epaphroditus is a soldier of the cross. He is fighting against sin in himself. He's fighting against his own temptations. And yes, he is fighting doctrines of demons, false teaching. And yes, he is even risking his physical life in service as a soldier of God. We read here of him almost losing his life through sickness. Of course, anybody can get sick, right? Does that make you, does that make you somehow a soldier? Anybody could get close to dying from sickness, right? 
We talk about having to fight for your life, don't we? But does that, does that make you a soldier, a fellow soldier with Paul? Does that make you a soldier of the cross, a soldier of Christ? No. And yet, the moment a Christian becomes sick, there's fighting to do, isn't there? You get sick, and you're going to face immediate temptations that come along with sickness, aren't you? Some people get sick and become very selfish. Some people get sick and get very depressed and despairing. Some people get sick and get angry at God. And so the moment you get sick, all of a sudden you have a new battle to fight as a soldier. How else does Paul describe this man, Epaphroditus? He describes him here as a messenger. Their messenger. And also a minister to Paul's own needs. Epaphroditus was sent as a messenger by the Philippians to Paul. And then, he didn't just have a message, but he was the message. The message from the Philippians was, we are with you and serving you. And so Epaphroditus fulfilled that work by ministering to Paul in Paul's need. He didn't just deliver the letter and then say, my work here is done. Here's some money. See ya. Rather, he served Paul at a time of difficulty for Paul. Service. So the messenger then has a different relationship from the sender to the one he's sent to, right? He is, on the one hand, <clears throat> committed with as, as a trustworthy man with a message and with an objective when he is sent as a messenger. And so the Philippians entrust themselves, their care, their work to him. It's only when he completes that work in ministering to Paul's need that the message is fully delivered, that the work they've entrusted him with is fully accomplished. It's easy to have a good reputation until trial comes and you're actually tested. We don't know anything about Epaphroditus prior to this, right? You can think of, uh, you can think of plenty of examples though where people have good teaching, good theology, good training, have worked faithfully in the church for years, They have a good reputation. But the moment that real trouble comes, what happens? They run away. In other words, what we see is that there is a real risk, a real danger that comes through hirelings. Shepherds that don't have any actual care for the sheep, but have simply been going along, showing up, benefiting from the work of being a pastor. You know, people love them, provide for them, care for them, generous with them, and then what? Then they send them off on a hard journey, and it's like, eh, like John Mark, eh, you know what? 
this is, this is an awful lot of trouble. I think I'm done here. And they go back. What sort of a messenger is that? A messenger you can't rely on? A messenger who's not willing to do the work? Epaphroditus goes all the way, doesn't he? (laughs) Through sickness, through long travels, through the danger of carrying money while traveling, to Paul, and then... The church that sent him hears that he's sick. It's not like hearing that somebody like John Mark is sick. It's not like hearing that a messenger who gave up trying to deliver the message and ran off with the money is sick. You kind of want to think they got what they're, they got what was coming to them if it's that, if that's the person, right? Now, here's Epaphroditus. He's faithfully served them. He's faithfully accomplished the work that they've given him to do. And what does, what happens to him? He gets terribly sick. And so here we learn something else about Epaphroditus. Not just that he's willing to do the hard work. Not just that he's willing to take the risks. Not just that he paid the real cost of those risks because he did almost die in the work. We also find out that he didn't want the church in Philippi, the people who had sent him, he didn't want them to be fearful. He knows they heard he was sick, so he and Paul both want him to get back quickly. Why? So that they won't be distressed. So that they won't be afraid. So that they won't be worried. So that they won't be sorrowful. Remember the theme of this book over and over again that we see is Paul's command and exhortation to them that they must rejoice. That they must have joy in God. And Paul insists that they rejoice even though he's in prison. And yet here we see that losing such a man would be sorrowful for Paul. Right? Losing such a man would be hard for Paul. He admits that it would be Sorrow on sorrow, on top of sorrow, if he had lost Epaphroditus. He knows how painful it would be to the Philippians if they lost such a man. A man that you can receive in the Lord with all joy back from work that you've given him to do, that he's accomplished faithfully, back from sickness, back from being near to death, that's that's going to be some real joy when he shows back up, isn't it? And so Paul immediately says, yes, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Now imagine for a moment that Paul was writing a different letter. Imagine that God's will had been that Epaphroditus had died in the process of accomplishing the work that he had been given to do. What would Paul say to the Philippians? He would say rejoice. 
he would say rejoice. He, when he says it in other places in the book with sad things, like the fact that he himself is in jail, it's not because he's some sort of robot that doesn't understand what it means to be sad, who doesn't understand what it means to love somebody, doesn't understand that there is real sorrow in losing somebody like Epaphroditus. That's not Paul, is it? We can even tell that this is the case because he says that if Epaphroditus had been lost, it would be sorrow on top of sorrow. Meaning that sorrows are already there. Meaning also that he would have the sorrow not only of losing Epaphroditus, but of having to send the message to them that Epaphroditus is dead, causing them sorrow. Paul's not some sort of emotionless zealot. Paul is not somebody who just can't quite figure out how to handle those kinds of emotions. He's describing the joy that they should have by contrasting it with the sorrow that he knows would be there both in him and in them if Epaphroditus had died in the process of fighting the good fight, being a soldier for the Lord in the process of risking his life to complete what was deficient in their service to him. And yet God was merciful. You see that in verse 27? God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And so... Listen, does God become unmerciful when we suffer sickness? No. Does God become unmerciful if we lose a child to death? No. Does it prove that God's not merciful if we're arrested and thrown in jail for gospel ministry? No. And yet, is it, is it appropriate to say that if Paul is re- released from prison, that God has shown mercy? Is it appropriate to say that if Epaphroditus is spared from death, that God has shown mercy? God's mercies are new every morning. And one of the mercies that's given to the Philippian church at this time is that Epaphroditus is returned to them. What a mercy that is. What a tender mercy from the hand of God. And so Paul has opportunity on both sides of the spectrum to exhort them to joy and to rejoicing. Sometimes because God has chosen and seen fit to leave him in jail, a hard mercy, but a mercy. And other times because God has seen fit to restore Epaphroditus to health and to return to the church that sent him in the first place. You'd think that Paul would start with that one, don't you? In this whole letter of telling them to rejoice, we're at the end of chapter 2, and finally he says, oh, and by the way, you get Epaphroditus back. That's something to rejoice about. (laughs) But why put that so far after he's already dealt with hard things, and exhorting them to rejoice. Because if we think that it's only about that God's mercy is only shown, that we're only able to have joy, that we're only able to rejoice 
when we get the things that we want, like Epaphroditus restored to health, we won't have any concept of how to understand the rest of our life, which is one that is filled with pain and sorrow and all of the rest of creation together with us groaning under the weight of the curse and its consequences. Epaphroditus is willing to suffer whatever the consequences in serving God. And so here, Paul is using Epaphroditus, holding him up as a model, as one who is willing to undergo hard, sorrowful, difficult suffering in service to God. And he says, receive him back with joy? Absolutely. Rejoice. But you don't have to be told to do that. That comes naturally, doesn't it? But then what he says is, hold such men in high regard. Hold men like him in high regard. Esteem them. Honor them. Why? Because what you don't get any hint of here is that Epaphroditus is a complainer who doubts the mercy of God the moment that something hard happens to him, do you? What instead you get is, here is a willing servant of God who has suffered for his sake, going back, returning to continue the work at the church in Philippi. What is he like? He's a brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's a messenger and a minister to the needs of those that he's sent to. He's one who cares about how his church is feeling. He doesn't want them sad, worried, sorrowful. He doesn't want them distressed. And so if we learn to hold men like him in high regard, it means that we will have a faithful commitment to rejoicing and working regardless of what the service we're called to do looks like. Regardless of whether we are returned to health or suffer, as Paul did, with a thorn in his side for the rest of his life. You see, this is the kind of man Epaphroditus was, a fellow brother, a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier with Paul. And so we rejoice that such men are given to the church. And then, by following their model, we learn to rejoice, which is Paul's great goal in this book, is to get the church at Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray.